I next met with Dr. Moshe Talpez to discuss papers in myelofibrosis, AML, CML, ALL, and APL. And to begin, Dr. Talpez commented on two ASH papers that provided an update to the Phase three landmark clinical trials evaluating the JAK-1-2 inhibitor ruxolitinib. This year, during the ASH meeting, we have heard about an update of the COMFORT-1 study. Just by the way of background, several years ago, a mutation in the JAK2 gene and a corresponding activation of the JAK2 enzyme was found to be present in most of the patients with polycythemia vera, a significant proportion of patients with essential thrombocythemia, and at least half of the patients with myelofibrosis, and it's argued that the percentage is actually higher than half of the patients. Once that finding was noted, an effort to develop an inhibitor to the JAK2-activated enzyme was initiated, and the first drug that was tested and actually received approval was ruxolitinib. This particular drug was studied in patients with myelofibrosis and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine a while ago. The major finding there was that ruxolitinib results in effective outcome among patients with myelofibrosis, and the effect was primarily improvement in quality of life with symptom improvement, such as improvement in night sweats, weight loss, muscle pains, bone pain, as well as less abdominal pain and better appetite. The major objective finding was a reduction in the spleen size, which was noted in the vast majority of patients, and a significant reduction of more than 35% of volume reduction was noted in about 40 plus percent of the patients. Some reduction of the spleen was noted in almost all the patients. This was a randomized controlled study against a group that received placebo. And the difference was striking as far as the effect on the spleen and symptoms. The current abstract that was presented during the most recent ASH meeting provides an update of that study. And it has some important findings. The most important one is the durability of the response. Splenic response, especially among patients that have more than 35% reduction in splenic volume, is a durable response, and it was ongoing in most of the patients. Some regression of the response was noted. However, when assessed how often did the patient maintain at least 10% reduction in the spleen volume, in this particular group, this is ongoing beyond two years in 90% of the patients. I guess we should point out, too, that the original comfort data was with one year of follow-up, and now this is with about two years. Yeah. So this is an extended follow-up that goes now beyond two years, actually. And the impressive finding is the reduction in the spleen size and the ongoing and stable improvement in symptoms. Another finding that continues to be present, it was reported earlier and it continues to be confirmed, is some, albeit modest, advantage in survival for the patients who were treated with droxelotinib compared to the placebo-controlled patients. And you have to keep in mind that the placebo-controlled patients, that the study allowed a crossover 
when the patients who didn't respond, obviously, on the placebo arm were allowed to be treated with ruxolitinib. Before you go on, maybe you can pick up a little bit on that comment, because I was really surprised in that most of the patients in the placebo arm did cross over, and it wasn't that long that it took them before they started crossing over, and yet there was a survival benefit. What do you think that means? The study, by the way, this is seen in the European study as well. I don't want to dwell too much on that, but I'm intrigued by this finding as well. Does it mean that the delay in treatment is associated with survival advantage, or is the survival advantage so small that at this point has to be treated as anecdotal only and not to make too much out of it? Right. Okay. So we have to be cautious. I'm not over-interpreting that finding. And if you look at the second study at Comfort 2, they are very cautious with that observation of some survival advantage. So there is some survival advantage. There is improvement in quality of life and improvement in the spleen, an effect that seems to be sustained, particularly in the group with the deepest response. And that's an important fact. The fact is that responses are not that durable in patients with minor regression of the spleen, but it seems that the depth of response or the depth of regression of the spleen will indicate the durability of that response. Other findings of significance is that of the anemia, which keeps coming up as an issue with JAK2 inhibitors, and particularly with roxalitinib. Yes, anemia induced by the drug and aggravation of existing anemia was noted, However, particularly with a dose of 10 milligrams twice daily, it was limited in duration, lasting a few months, starting by about week four and lasting a few months, and then tending to go back to baseline, perhaps a little lower than the baseline, but the deep drop in hemoglobin was noted for a few months and then tended to get better. That is also manifested in an initial increase in transfusion requirement that was later balanced out and not higher than the control group. Another two points that I wanted to emphasize, one was already mentioned earlier, and that's the impact of the JAK2 mutations. It seems that responses were seen equally among patients with JAK2 mutations and without it. That applies also to the impact on survival. If somebody wants to read too much into it, it may be said that those that have the mutation perhaps a little bit better responses and better impact on survival, but it's actually minimal. And you're aware that as part of another project you're helping us with, we documented that almost half of U.S.-based medical oncologists are not aware that benefit is observed in patients with myelofibrosis without JAK mutations, something that hopefully this program and other efforts can change that misperception. Any hypotheses about why we haven't seen a correlation between JAK2 mutation status and the benefit of these agents? Yeah. One of the characteristics of myelofibrosis is the activation of the whole cascade of NF-kappa-B, which is an inflammatory cascade which leads to increased proliferative activity and the link to it cascade of JAK2 pathway which may be the consequence of activation of factors such as IL-6 and IL-10 and so forth. What it means is that you don't necessarily have to have a mutation. And JAK2 is activated either directly by a mutation or is activated through upstream effects such as the activation of NF-kappa-B and activation of certain cytokines. In other words, it appears that JAK2 is activated by a variety of mechanisms in most of the patients with myelofibrosis, and accordingly, responses should not be restricted to mutation only. 
So I'd like your comments also on the sort of tandem presentation that was also done of the European phase three study, so-called Comfort 2, which was ruxolitinib compared to best supportive care. And they also, I think, initially reported about one year of follow-up and now a little bit more than two years. What did they report? In essence, the Comfort 2 study, which is a smaller study, by the way, than the Comfort 1 study in the sense that it enrolled less patients, but the outcome is very similar to Comfort 1. It also emphasizes the stability of a splenic response, presented somewhat differently here, and it looked at how long does the remission last, and it appears that 60% of the patients have a remission that is lasting close, and I think the median follow-up is 84 weeks, so it's close to two years, with 60% of the patients continuing to respond. There is a constant rate of dropout, so there is no plateau and it seems that most of the patients do develop resistance, but that the response is not short-lived. It can be measured in years and not in weeks or perhaps not even in months. That's one point. The second point, the study, which this time it was run again, best available treatment, although I don't think it's substantially different from placebo because there is no best available treatment that preceded the JAK2 inhibitors. But again, the study allowed crossover but demonstrated the same effect of um, small survival benefit, which emerged, unlike the Comfort One study, emerged late in the course. I cannot provide an explanation to this one. And the authors of this abstract also are cautious not to overinterpret this finding. So let's move on to two other myelofibrosis presentations, one that you had and another by Dr. Harrison looking at the issue of patients with platelet counts between 50 and 100,000. Okay, so both comfort studies were open to patients with uh, 100,000 or more platelets. It was not initially open to patients with less platelets because it was a safety issue. Should patients with moderate thrombocytopenia be subjected to the treatment? And the two studies that have addressed that question were the study in the U.S., which I presented, and the European study. They differ quite a bit in their design. Let me say the European study was a classical phase one study with small cohorts of patients which were escalated gradually. And as a matter of fact, it's still very much in its midst and they don't have yet definitive data. It's too early to talk about data from that study. Whereas the study that I presented is a study that started at a dose of five milligrams twice daily of roxilitinib and allowed escalation in all the patients based on platelet counts at monthly intervals. So the data information is much more apparent in this particular study. So in these studies, in both studies, we included patients with the platelet counts between 50 to 100,000, which means uh, moderate 50 to 75,000 platelets and 75 to 100,000 platelets mild thrombocytopenia. And the take-home message from the studies that I presented was that the vast majority of patients can be treated if they have platelets at the starting point of that range between 50 to 100,000. And most of them end up with a dose of anywhere from 15 to 20 milligrams daily. Furthermore, the responses were slightly lower 
than the ones seen in Comfort 1 and 2, but not dramatically lower. There were still about 35% of the patients have this, what we call, reduction in spleen volume to a level of partial response, 35% reduction in volume. And at least 40% of the patient had 50% or more reduction in symptoms. And in these patients, another benefit was much less prominent anemia. The anemia seemed to have been nullified by this different approach of gradual escalation. And it seems that that may be an approach that will be adopted increasingly by physicians and companies because it seems that it can overcome the aggravation of the anemia. One interesting finding was actually the identification of a small group of patients. Actually, it was five patients, which is about, I would say, 11, 12% of the total studied patients that had actually increased in platelets, not decrease in platelets. And these patients had the increase in platelets as a consequence of therapy, most likely because the thrombocytopenia was secondary to platelet sequestration by the spleen rather than poor production in the bone marrow. And interesting, these patients, by the way, had an earlier disease, better prognostic group disease, and they can be identified. So that's an interesting small subset. By the way, it was also identified equally by the European study. The other patients had very predictable drop in platelets. All patients had a drop in platelets of between 20 to 40,000. So for patients with platelet counts to start with between 75 to 100,000, it had no impact. The treatment did not have to be modified. For patients, the starting point was a little lower. Occasionally, it required treatment interruption, modification, and so forth. But this drop in platelets was actually predictable and fairly consistent across the board. How do you explain the fact that you were able to dose escalate? Is it all the issue of, you know, you treat the spleens getting smaller, less sequestration? Or do you think there's some pharmacodynamic things going on? What's your best explanation? Well, first of all, the escalation has not reached the level of the starting point of comfort one. The average patient ended up getting 10 milligrams twice daily. It's still half the dose of comfort one. So we have learned that probably the working dose is 10 milligrams twice daily. Add to it the observation that we have seen in Comfort One and you discussed with me earlier, and we wonder, maybe the dose to work with is not 20 milligrams twice daily, but 10 milligrams twice daily, and maybe that's the average dose that should be applied to most of the patients. Is this approach that you took, the one that you're using right now outside of protocol setting for these kinds of patients? Okay, I have a mixed bag of patients, and obviously some of the patients that I tried have lower platelets than the 100,000. And in these patients, I start with low dose and I'm very cautious. In the average patients, I go with 10 milligrams twice daily, not with the 20, twice daily. And I typically may escalate if the anemia and the platelet counts allows. So I take a little bit different approach than the studies. I usually start with a somewhat lower dose, but I'm not doing the five twice daily. I'm doing the 10 in the vast majority of patients. And what about patients with platelet counts less than 50,000? Okay. I'm not sure we, <laughs> we can report it because it's, it's violating the, the label insert of the study, but I did it. And I think that the concern there is that many, if not most of these patients, have already damaged bone marrow. They have low cellularity, heavy fibrosis, and the platelets continue to drop. So as a suggestion, if anyone has the intent to do it, to check the bone marrow and to check the cellularity first and to be very careful 
not to treat patients with an extremely low cellularity of 10 to 20% with a myelosuppressive treatment, it will not be beneficial. Certainly, we don't want to harm a patient. But on the other hand, as you pointed out earlier, there's not many options out there. You have a sick patient. Seems like it'd be very tempting to, you know, maybe give a cautious try to it. I have done it. I have done it. But as a rule, it has not been rewarding. Because the patient with uh, moderate thrombocytopenia, yes, they have the subset of patients that can tolerate the treatment and others that can actually increase the platelets. That was not the case with patients that have low white count and low platelets. Let's say if you have a patient with 2,000 white cells or 1,000 absolute neutrophil count and platelets below 50,000, they tend to have already long-standing disease with hypoplastic or severely damaged bone marrow. In these patients, I didn't aggravate their situation, but I could give very short spells of treatment, had to interrupt it, and I couldn't deliver any effective treatment. So let's talk a little bit about AML. There was one paper, Abstract 45, looking at homo-harringtonine-based induction regimens. And then there were a couple of papers on quizartinib. Okay, so let's address those issues. First, homo-harringtonine. Homo-harringtonine is an old drug that is known also here as the omacetaxin, that has just been recently approved as a treatment for CML. Actually, the study from China is a very large and intriguing study, which included a large number of patients that were treated in three different treatment arms, including very much the standard treatment. I wouldn't call it 3 plus 7, but it included uh, anthracycline, cytosine arabinoside, plus minus HHT, homoharingtonin in two of the arms, and the third one was only anthracycline and cytosine arabinoside without homoharingtonin. Both arms that included homoharingtonin showed about approximately 10% better response rate and better survival, even though there was an increased risk of complications, slightly increased risk of complications among the patients that also received the homoharingtonin. So this was an intriguing finding. They analyzed it further and actually have done a careful work looking at prognostic features among AML. And they noted that the patients that had NPM mutation without FLIT3 or CEBPA mutation, which are considered low-risk diseases, tend to respond better to this combination with homoharingtonin and the difference was more pronounced in this particular group. So I think it's an intriguing study. It's a large-scale study. I'm unable to attest to how carefully it was conducted, but if data are verified, it's an intriguing study. It's absolutely not something to be ignored. And maybe the mechanism is simply that the homoringtonin is a protein synthesis inhibitor, and it's very different than anthracycline and nucleoside analog. So maybe it's synergistic with those drugs. You said it's related to omicetaxine? It's the same. It's the same. They don't even say the it's word the, in it. It's very much the same. It's not just related. It's the same drug. And anything else you want to say about how it works? All I can comment on is, well, it's a traditional chemotherapy which interferes with protein synthesis. I can say that while I was at MD Anderson, we used it fairly extensively in CML and CML blast crisis. And prior to that, we used it also in AML. But when we used it in AML, we used high doses that were cardiotoxic. And only when we worked with CML, we learned to work with smaller doses, which are similar to the one presented in this Chinese study. 
So I'm intrigued by this study. I must say that while reviewing the abstract, I didn't, I don't know if it was presented orally or it was a poster. I didn't hear it, but this is an intriguing finding. Let's talk a little bit about quizartinib. Yes, quizartinib, I'm getting to the point it's very difficult for me to follow the names of all of those small molecules. Quizartinib was presented in two presentations here, so that's two separate groups. It's actually very much the same study. It was presented by two separate presenters. One was in patients over the age of 60 with relatively early relapse, whereas the other one was patients that had already, younger patients that already had a relapse before. I mean, more advanced disease. And what is this agent? Quizartinib is a FLIT3 kinase inhibitor. So let's spend a minute on FLIT3. FLIT3 is a receptor tyrosine kinase. In other words, it's unlike the BCR able which is a cytoplasmic, which means it sits inside the cell. FLIT3 is a receptor. It sits on the membrane, which means it binds to a ligand. It binds to a proteins. It binds to it and activates it normally. But in the case of leukemias, it is activated on its own. This enzyme is activated on its own. How is the enzyme activated on its own? It's a tyrosine kinase. It's activated... So two types of mutations. One is known as ITD. ITD is internal tandem duplication of the gene. The gene duplicates a part of it that is close to the membrane and activates the kinase, the enzyme. A second one is a classic mutation within the enzyme that activates it. This is present in up to 36% of the patients with AML. So it's a common event. You know, it is a debate whether it's a primary event or whether it's an acquisition that makes the leukemia more aggressive. And typically it goes with the other mutation known as the NPM mutation. And once a patient with NPM mutation, which by itself is a leukemia with relatively decent, moderate to good outcome, once they have FLIT3 mutation as a secondary event, the outlook is much worse. Because it is a receptor and it is an enzyme, tyrosine kinase inhibitors were developed. And over the years, several of those have been tested. And uh, several clinical studies with inhibitors to FLIT3 have been carried out in the past, including randomized studies combining chemotherapy plus FLIT3 inhibitors. And the effect of the previous drugs was modest to moderate whereas in randomized study, it didn't pan out to have an advantage. The argument about quizartinib is that it's more powerful. It's more powerful chemically as an inhibitor of the enzyme, and theoretically, it's the most powerful inhibitor of FLIT3. And the results of the study indicate a fairly high response rate in this highly resistant and highly refractory population of patients. And in the study presented by Dr. Cortez, in fairly sizable studies, that means in 132 patients, of whom 90 had the mutation, whereas the other did not have the ITD-type mutations, responses were significant, and significant hematologic responses were noted in the patient with the mutations in up to 70% of the patients, some degree of response, partial response, or what is called complete hematologic response, together they were about 72%, and the complete responses 
were noted in half of the patients. In the patient without the mutation, responses were seen in a third of the patient. This is a remarkable number. The responses typically lasted a few months, and the impact on survival was there, but it was modest. There was slight prolongation of survival. However, a more pronounced advantage was noted when comparing the responders versus the non-responders. I'm not sure I like the type of exercise comparing responders to non-responders, but that's typically being done. And here the responders have much longer survival than the patients who were non-responders. So overall, the statement here, here is another kinase inhibitor, which is of interest in this particular group of patients. And it will certainly be tested in combination with chemotherapy in this particular group of patients. And what about tolerability and side effects? The argument from this phase two study is that the drug was overall well tolerated. Gastrointestinal toxicity was noted. Diarrhea and nausea appear to be the most prominent toxicity, but most of them were grade one. Grade three, four were noted only in a small fraction of the patients. Myelosuppression is, of course, expected. So in the treatment of leukemia, I don't consider it a side effect. Another important side effect, which was significant in some patients, in 10% of the patients, was prolongation of the QTC, which means changes in the EKG, changes in the electrical conductivity of the heart, which increased significantly the risk of arrhythmia, was noted and led to a dose reduction in a significant proportion of the patients. So where do you see this agent heading? If you look at the course of previous FLIT3 inhibitors, once phase two have demonstrated activity, and here two phase twos have clearly demonstrated activity, they will be taken probably in combination, either with the classic regimen for AML, the 3 plus 7, and added to it to see if patients with FLIT3, specifically with FLIT3, which are high-risk patients, if they can get improvement in overall response rate and remission duration which means the pivotal study. Those are the phase three pivotal studies that have to be compared to no addition of the tyrosine kinase inhibitor, just the 3 plus 7. All right, let's talk a little bit about CML. And first, I want to ask you about the PACE trial presented by Dr. Cortez on ponotinib. Ponotinib is an interesting drug, and it's the fifth kinase inhibitor approved in CML. It's number five and perhaps the most powerful one at least, as far as being able to cover mutation, it is the one that you can relate to as the ultimate one because it covers virtually all mutations. We, namely Cortez and I, have published the New England papers that was just published, I think about two months ago, of the phase one study. And the PACE study is the continuation of a large phase two study, which was a multi-center, multinational study and enrolled more than 300 patients. I think it enrolled about 440 patients. And it included patients with chronic phase CML, with and without T315I mutation, patients with accelerated phase with and without T315I mutation, and blast crisis patients and acute lymphoblastic leukemia, Philadelphia positive, with and without T315I mutation. Why do I emphasize the issue of the T315I mutation? Because that's a mutation within the BCR-ABLE kinase domain, which is resistant to all existing treatments of CML. Other than ponatinib, 
we can mention also omacetaxin, which is not a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It's a chemotherapy, which was also approved on the basis of its activity in advanced CML and against T315i. So T315i is the ultimate mutation. It renders resistance to imatinib, nilotinib, dasatinib, bosutinib, and is responsive very well to ponatinib. And this was shown in the PACE study. There was a very high response rate and a high cytogenetic response rate in this particular group of patients. In addition, there was a high response rate among patients who were resistant to at least two and also to three tyrosine kinase inhibitors. In other words, there was a very good response rate to patients that were resistant to imatinib and nilotinib and patients that were resistant to imatinib, nilotinib, dasatinib, all three. Surprisingly, in this particular study, cytogenetic responses of major nature, which means partial and complete cytogenetic responses, were noted in more than 50% of the patients, and complete cytogenetic responses were noted in about 40% of the patients. This is not the patient with the T315i. This is the other patient, the resistant patient, where the mechanism of resistance is not necessarily clear. Why is it important? Because this is a group of patients with really bad disease, very long-standing disease, resistant to everything. Nevertheless, they responded to this new drug, not just by a hematologic response, but also by cytogenetic improvement. Anecdotally, I'll bring you some experience of my own patients, where we included patients with long-standing disease, 10 years or more, who had never had a cytogenetic response, and suddenly they were able to get cytogenetic responses, including complete one. And that is not something that was expected, which means the drug is a powerful drug. It was approved for patients with resistant CML, not specific indication for T315i mutation, but clearly that's a group that this drug is the preferential treatment for them. Any issues with tolerability? There is issues of tolerability, and I would say that has to be addressed, and of course, we need to watch it over time to see in a larger cohort of patients what are the dominant issues. To me, two issues of tolerability are of importance. One is the cardiologic toxicities, and they include an incidence of, I think it's 8% significant incidence of thromboembolic complications, which means increased risk of myocardial infarction, risk of cerebrovascular accidents, risk of other types of embolic complications, and also an increased risk of creating or aggravating peripheral arterial occlusive disease. All of those were noted and have to be paid attention to. And well, some of it may have to do with the population of patients who are older and had long-standing disease, but I wouldn't take it lightly. I would say that Patients have to be watched carefully. I personally am now adding mild platelet aggregants inhibitors to the treatment. I'm adding aspirin, and the patients at high risk, we should consider adding Plavix. The second complication that was noted is occasional pancreatitis. Those seem to be reversible upon treatment interruption and not overall severe in nature, and perhaps those dependent, but those have to be paid attention to as well. Occasional low risk of bleeding was noted as well, 
and cardiac arrhythmias, especially atrial fibrillations, was occasionally noted. So it's not an innocuous drug. It's a powerful tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It has a role in resistant disease. It may have a definitive role in this disease, but we have to learn how to administer it and take the needed precautions. Is there an interest? Are there trials looking at it earlier up front? That's, uh, to the extent that I can disclose it, this is going on. As you know, imatinib was approved when it was compared to interferon. The satinib and nilotinib were subsequently approved as frontline treatments when compared to imatinib. Ponatinib is now being compared to imatinib in the frontline setting to see if it will have superiority over imatinib. I think it's a difficult territory, if I may comment, because the results with nilotinib are remarkable with a very low rate of progression with nilotinib already, extremely low, so it's perhaps impossible to improve and the rate of progression. However, ponatinib as a powerful drug may improve on the incidence of deep responses, which means major and complete molecular responses may perhaps be seen more often with this drug. And if this is the endpoint of the study, this particular drug may have an advantage there, but that's to be seen. All of this is said in the context of the current research, which starts to focus on effort to discontinue the treatment and not give these treatments for a lifelong treatment, and to see if we can affect cost and toxicity considerations by limiting the duration of treatments. And obviously, to be able to do it, we need to get patients with the deepest possible responses. So perhaps this drug may have an advantage there, but that is to be seen. I think we'll have to wait for the maturity of this data before we will be able to comment if this drug provides an advantage in this area. Any sense in terms of long-term tolerability in terms of how panotinib might stack up against imatinib or for that matter, dosatinib or nilotinib? I would say it's a little bit too early to say. Personally, I have experience with this drug because I started the phase one 2008. So we have experience with patients that go on with the treatment already for five years, and we have other patients that get it now for two to three years, a good cohort of patients. So it seems that it's well tolerated, but as stated, the toxicities are not to be ignored. And I would like to see us adding some ways to monitor these patients, either by adding stress test, echo, using proper management of the patient with perhaps a higher frequency of visits. So there are a couple other CML papers I want to ask you about. You mentioned basutinib, and there were two papers, abstract 3779 and 3785, looking at this therapy. Basutinib was presented in two studies. Let's spend a minute on the drug. The drug is another BCR-able inhibitor, a second-generation BCR-able inhibitor, which means it doesn't inhibit T315I mutation. And in that respect, it's similar to dasatinib and nilotinib. And this drug was approved recently for the treatment of CML. The drug has somewhat similar properties to dasatinib in the sense that it's also a SARC inhibitor. However, it is not a platelet-derived growth factor receptor inhibitor. And when I looked at the activity of the drug in resistant patients, it is similar or perhaps even slightly superior, but it's not a comparative study, to dasatinib and nilotinib when given to the group of patients with resistant 
an intolerant disease. In this particular study, the intolerant group was a little larger, but interestingly, they didn't respond better than the resistant disease. Again, very similar to dasatinib and nilotinib, more than 50% of the patients had major cytogenetic responses, and more than 40% have complete cytogenetic responses. So in that respect, it's very similar to the other drugs. The responses were surprisingly fairly durable, and to the extent that I recall, 60% of the patients had responses lasting beyond two years. That's a little better than the figures that we know for nilotinib. The second study presented by Curie took patients that were either already resistant to dasatinib or nilotinib, resistant or intolerant, and were treated now with bosutinib. And surprisingly, there was a cohort of patients, I can't recall the number, but was it about 20% that responded to this drug. So it may perhaps also have a role in the resistant disease, although it's hard to say whether it's similar in its activity to ponatinib that was very active in this setting. But the summary is, here we have another BCR-ABLE inhibitor that is effective. Because we have so many BCR-ABLE inhibitors that are effective in CML, one question is, what signifies a drug? Why to use one over the others? And perhaps the big advantage of bosutinib, it doesn't cause significant fluid retention. Unlike imatinib, it doesn't cause significant pleural effusion or pericardial effusion, unlike the satinib doesn't have much events of pancreatitis and liver abnormalities, unlike nilotinib, and the skin toxicity seems to be mild in nature. It has a different toxicity. Its major toxicity is diarrhea. And at times it can be disturbing and reach grade 3, 4, but it seems that over time it's a tolerated drug. So we have another drug for our arsenal of treatment of CML. What comes to mind is treating elderly patients with heart disease. This can be a nice backup drug. There are other settings where I'll use it, and I'm using it occasionally. So we are now have to juggle between several drugs, and the choices at this point are not based on cost, but are based primarily on the state of the disease and the patient's other characteristics, the host characteristics, how healthy is the patient, what other problems did he have, and that helps me in making choices of drugs. Any interest in moving basutinib up front? It was done. It was done and was not approved, this study was carried out and published, and it was slightly superior, but not much, not statistically, to imatinib. I don't think that it's in any way inferior to the satinib or nilotinib. I think it has to do with pitfalls in the study, more than anything. So, regretfully, it's probably not going to be repeated. Regretfully, the study was such that it didn't demonstrate advantage cytogenetically, and accordingly, it has not been approved for frontline. So speaking of newly approved drugs in CML, there were also a couple papers, 2787, 3753, looking at omocetaxine. Any comments about those? A little bit. Omocetaxine was approved, again, as a treatment for resistant disease. And because it has a moderate activity in patients with resistant disease and in patients with T315I mutations. Now, omocetaxin is not a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It is a chemotherapy. It's a different group of drugs. However, it has moderate, I would say it has less activities than ponatinib in treating T315I. The remissions tend to be short-lived, lasting a few months. 
but it's another drug in the arsenal of drugs in resistant disease. I would not comment on the abstracts because they deal with very small number of patients. One deals with a selected group of nine patients that have sustained remissions. The other one deals with blast crisis and shows a low response rate, I think 11% in blast crisis. But those are more within the context of anecdotal observations. I'm just commenting on the approval of the drug, which provides another tool in the treatment of CML. But we have to keep in mind that unlike the target therapies, this is not a targeted therapy. This is a chemotherapy. Nevertheless, unlike other chemotherapies, it can be given subcutaneously for repeated courses. The nature, the way it works, it can be administered chronically, and that provides some advantage. So right now, in what situations are you using this agent, and what do you see with it? Uh, okay, I was involved with early study with it in the 90s, and I have not used it much since, but indications will be a few of the prevalent CML patients that we still have, patients that are resistant to everything, very long-standing disease, and it will be a drug that can be effective in maintaining remission for some time, as presented in the occasional cases, sometimes even for years. So I don't see the major purpose of using the drug and to push for cytogenetic responses, but rather use it to maintain hematologic remissions in some patients that have a disease which is still in the chronic or in the accelerated phase, and the disease is notoriously resistant to everything that we have otherwise. So the role is fairly limited, in my view, its role in T315I is perhaps second role in patients that fail to respond to ponatinib, although that's not a common event. I would use it in accelerated phase as a drug that can stabilize the disease. I probably don't think that it has much role in blast crisis. So a couple papers in ALL that you know we saw some really exciting data on. Yeah, so the issues that we have to address here is first, B-cell precursor ALL is a disease that once it fails the frontline treatment, there is not much to do. It's highly resistant to other forms of therapy. And the median survival of patients, once they are resistant to the frontline treatment, which is chemotherapy-based, the median survival is measured in a few months, about five to six months. So it's not a disease with a great outcome. It afflicts many elderly patients who are not candidates for transplant. And the utilization of new antibodies targeting cellular targets is an intriguing, appealing, and interesting approach, which we see now being used increasingly. So we have several antibodies which are being used now in lymphoma. You are familiar with the rituxan, the anti-CD20. There is a very interesting drug that has just been approved for Hodgkin and anti-CD30. So in lymphomas, we see the role for several antibody-based drugs, like we talked about rituxan, we talked anti-CD30, ofatumumab, which is another anti-CD20. Two new antibodies were presented in ASH, and they were both very, very interesting. The first one is a European study, which examined, I think it was German-Austrian study, examined blinatumumab. Blinatumumab is a biphenotypic antibody. On the one hand, it binds to CD19, a common antigen on the surface of most of the B cells. And on the other hand, it binds to T cells. So it binds two ways. It attracts T cells or immune cells to the leukemic cells to kill them. It's an interesting approach. And the drug is administered over a prolonged period by continuous infusion over 28 days. 
and the study had rather remarkable response rate. If you look at this study, you see responses in the vast majority of patients, 70% response rate on the average, regardless of the cohort of patients. So that's a remarkable response, and the responses were not short-lived. They were measurable in months, not in days. And several of the patients who were not candidates for allogeneic transplant became now candidates to allogeneic transplant because of the deep responses. So this is intriguing. And the second study, it was an antibody directed against a different marker surface antigen on B cells. That is CD22. The antibody is an antibody coupled to a poison. In this case, it's a chemotherapy known as calichamycin. So it's an anti-CD22 calichamycin known as inotuzumab ozagamycin. So basically an antibody drug conjugate. Yes, an antibody drug conjugate. The first one is a biphenotypic antibody that binds to T cells and the target on the cell. This one is an antibody drug conjugate and tested again in acute lymphoblastic leukemia and with a significant response rate early in the study. This is at this point still a small study and I think it's still in its midst. And in 13 patients, they have seen responses in nine patients. So another very interesting approach. We are testing the same drug, and it's also presented in other lymphomas with significant activity as well. So here is two antibody-based therapies. Both of them are likely to be tested now further, either as frontline or in combination, and both of them have positive outlook. So the last paper I want to ask you about, it was the plenary paper, Abstract 6, looking at ATRA and arsenic trioxide versus ATRA and idorubicin, a phase three study for APL. Yeah, it's a sizable study. It's about 160 patients who were treated in Europe. The standard of treatment these days for acute promyelocytic leukemia is a combination of all transretinoic acid together with an anthracycline, downorubicin, or similar anthracycline. The role of arsenic trioxide has been relegated to relapsed patients, and it's been a very active drug in relapsed patients. Here, there is a comparative randomized study using all transretinoic acid combined with arsenic trioxide in comparison with the standard of care, which is downorubicin plus ATRA, all transretinoic acid. And this is with a decent follow-up. It shows a survival and remission advantage for the combination of arsenic trioxide with ultransretinoic acid with a survival and a relapse-free survival very close to 100%, a remarkable piece of information. So this study was a plenary study because it presented an approach which is likely to be incorporated very soon as the frontline treatment for APL. So it's an important piece of information and an important study. Event-free survival is about 95% for the combination of ATRA and arsenic trioxide, and it is about 80% for the ATRA and the anthracycline. And the overall survival for the arsenic trioxide and ATRA is very close to 100%. It's about 98%. It's a remarkable result. So it's likely to be incorporated as frontline treatment. So there are people, particularly those at MD Anderson, who are doing this right now. What are you doing yourself, and what do you think about actually doing this at this point? 
The last patients that we have seen were still treated with uh, anthracycline combined with old transretinoic acid and uh, arsenic trioxide was still used as salvage or in complicated cases. But I think it will be used as frontline. The result, which, by the way, well, it's an important point to emphasize. It was not done in high-risk patients. These results are in patients with low intermediate risk. That's important because high-risk patients has mortality. Those patients that had more than 10,000 white cells have still a significant mortality related to early bleeding and so forth. So this is a specific study in the bulk, perhaps the majority of the patients, but it should be emphasized that this is low intermediate risk patients. Uh, yeah, we will do that. We will implement this approach as well. Actually, the study was initially not this large-scale study, but this particular design of combination was done at MD Anderson first a few years ago, but they didn't test it in a randomized fashion and they've done it as a phase two study. So this is the definitive study.